Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach film studies and English literature at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in the fall of 2021 on having a point in your writing. I think everybody's got at least one of those people in their life who tells a story and no one knows, you know, like what the point is of the story. It just goes on and on and they, they, you know, they'll try to remember like, when, when was that? Now, what year was that in? What vehicle was I driving at the time? You know, who were we with exactly? And you're like, does this have any bearing on the story whatsoever? And then it turns out that there's no real point to the story and you, you're, you're, you're like, why, why did you tell it in the first place? Why did I listen? I think everybody has at least one person like that in their life. And I want us to think about that person uh, during today's lecture because um, this is all about having a point. You know, where is this going? Do you have a point? And a lot of my students don't know that they're supposed to have a point, I guess, or they don't know, you know, how to get there. Because I get these essays in and it's like information, 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 but it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't add up to anything. And I'll let you know, I've written my fair share of these sorts of essays um, when I, you know, tried to uh, show two sides of an argument once in a situation where I was going to, like, I was in trouble at work and I needed to show like, oh, there was this on the one hand and there was this on the other. But I never came around to saying, and this is why I did what I did. So, you know, you, you have to, you have to know why you're writing what you're writing. You have to know where it's going. I have often spoken of writing like a journey and you're planning for a trip in a sense when you're doing your research and when you're compiling all your information shaping is to some degree you know what route will we take to get to our destination but if we don't know what our destination is it's going to be really difficult to know when we've arrived and that i think is one of the other really great challenges for student writing is that there's no end game in sight now some of my students are going to come back at me and they're going to say, but Dr. Pershawn, you've told us to just get writing. You know, when we're drafting, we're, we don't necessarily have to know our thesis, that our thesis might come to us along the way. Yeah, but you at least need to have an audience in mind ahead of time and a, a sort of vague argument. We can have a working thesis, a tentative thesis, something that we think we're going to say. We don't want to go in completely blind. We should have thought about our topic enough to be able to say, mm, you know, I think it's going to turn out like this. Chapter 7 of They Say, I Say, So What and Who Cares, Saying Why It Matters, can help immensely in this regard. Graf and Birkenstein say that the problem is not the lack of a clear, well-focused thesis. So you could have a thesis and you still wouldn't know why it mattered or what, you know, what your ultimate point was um, because your thesis might be too basic. Uh, it might be something that's not terribly controversial, like in, in uh, Diana Hacker and Nancy Sommer's A Canadian Writer's Reference. Um, in the section on writing arguments, they say that you need to identify your purpose and context. In constructing an argument, you take a stand on a debatable issue. If it's not debatable, no one's going to care. The other problem Graf and Birkenstein identifies is that the thesis is inadequately supported with evidence. 
And that can happen if we don't know the right evidence to be using. So again, my students will go, information, information, and they're stacking up all sorts of stuff, but I don't know what for, right? So, um, you know, if you're writing in our class about Hiroshima and um, you are talking particularly, say, about the Soviet invasion that they were, you know, thinking if they could just get the Soviets to, to come in and um, attack from the other side, that Japan would be like, oh, we're done. We, we can't fight this unified war against Britain and America and Russia. Oh, we're done. We, we throw in the towel. And then if, but if you're stacking up a bunch of information, say about the logistics of the bomb or the, you know, the way that it impacted um, at the moment of explosion, or if you talk about uh, Oppenheimer, one of the guys who developed the bomb, it would all be topically relevant. Like it's, it's in the ballpark. But, you know, the thesis of the Soviet shock option being, uh, you know, one of the ways in which they could have ended the war, there's no, you're not supporting that at that point. So we always want to know, you know, where we're going and why it matters. Simply stating and proving your thesis isn't enough, Graf and Birkenstein say. Writers who cannot show that others should care or already do care about their claims will ultimately lose their audience's interest. Now, some of my students are going to look at this statement and say, but I don't care about Hiroshima and I don't care about Godzilla. Fair enough. That's one of the reasons we use them as a case study. Uh, you're not trying to write for everyone. You never write for everyone. No one can ever write with every possible audience in mind. So when we're thinking about the others that should care or already do care, we are imagining particular audiences. But in imagining those audiences, it can help us to write our argument. Like if we know, again, this is part of that destination idea that if, if we know who cares or who we imagine might care about our argument, then we will write specifically for them rather than some sort of vague general somebody out there, right? We, if we can identify a group that we are writing for, it helps us to write. Imagining that there is an audience helps us to write if for no other reason than to write in a direct and clear fashion. If we imagine an audience, then we might write less in a really sort of ornate and pretentious way, big sentences, etc. I'm going to be talking about this next week. Well, you know, uh, long sentences, big words, you know, pretentious language, what we think academic writing should be, and unfortunately, what academic writing often is. But if we write with an audience in mind, then we're going to write in a more clear and direct fashion in the way that we would, say, on a discussion forum. And I would say the way that we write on social media, but sometimes the way people write on social media is really vague and, you know, imprecise. So you're always like, what did you mean by that? So who cares? Identify a person or group who cares about your claims. Look at that. Identify a person or group who cares about your claims. It doesn't have to work for everyone. And... It doesn't have to solve world hunger, like your thesis. The students get into this who cares, this so what and who cares thing, and they're like, and therefore we should all watch Godzilla because Godzilla will help us to know uh, world peace. And I'm like, no, 
It didn't work for Honda. Rifle identified it didn't work for Honda. If it didn't work for Honda with a 1954 Godzilla, you seriously think that people living in the 21st century are going to watch the original 54 Godzilla and go, ah, yes, of course, war is awful. I don't know why we didn't come to this conclusion sooner. And, and we're done. We're done. Right? <laughs> it's not going to happen. Uh, okay. It's very unlikely that it will happen. But... That's not the sort of who cares we need to go for because we can identify a person or group who cares about our claims. Godzilla fans, people who are interested in film, people who are interested in Japanese film. I mean, that's what Tsutsui's doing. Tsutsui is at an East Asian Studies conference. East Asian Studies. He's in front of a bunch of East Asian academics. That doesn't mean they're East Asians. It means they study East Asia. And he studies Japan in particular. That's his area. That's what Tsutsui knows. And what does he know even better? He knows Godzilla even better. But look at the way that he builds his argument. He doesn't just come out and go, so Godzilla can teach us some things. He starts out by saying, isn't it weird that Godzilla's this popular, but there aren't any academics looking at the, at the, the series? They're not even looking at the original film. Isn't it weird, East Asian Studies colleagues? People who care about, about East Asian studies and therefore care about Japanese culture, Japanese film, right? And so he builds his argument in an awareness of the audience he is writing for. Steve Rifle does the same thing. He's aware that most people think Godzilla is ridiculous, but he's assuming that most people will be interested in finding out, you know, about this film as a classic movie. And you have to even just look at the, the magazine or the journal that it's published in, uh, Siniste. It's, it's, a, it's a film journal. So people who read that are going to be interested in that sort of content. And the same thing goes for uh, Tsutsui and, uh, or sorry, uh, for um, Alperovitz and Asada. They are writing for, you know, particular audiences. I think that Alperovitz's audience is far more general than Asada's. Alperovitz's uh, audience is this, you know, he's, I think he's, I think he imagines himself talking to America, um, but he's clearly not talking to, you know, people from other cultures. He's not trying to make this argument to those groups because the way that he sort of apologizes at the end uh, and says, hey, you know, I'm not knocking the veterans. This isn't about me coming down hard on those soldiers who just did what they were told. You sort of see who he thinks he's talking to there, right? There's a window into Alperovitz's, you know, who cares, or in his case, I think, who should care. Right? He's really working that should care angle that we need to find either people who do care or that we can imagine should care. And we're going to convince them that they, that they, that they should. And Alperovitz is definitely in the should care camp. <clears throat> Asada is talking to historians and he knows he is. So, you know, they, there are audiences that are attached to the very publications or venues that these works were being constructed in or for. Now, the who cares side of things, if we identify a person or group who cares about our claims, we're probably talking to a knowing audience. And what I mean by that is that they, they have some knowledge about our topic, right? So we can imagine 
in in uh, the Godzilla track that that the, you know our audience might know some things about film. We don't have to explain what a director does. We don't have to explain what a you know director of special effects does. We can we can leave some of the things unexplained. Um, but we don't want to go so far as to assume that all of our readers have seen Godzilla, the original 1954 film. We will probably want to take the time to uh, summarize it in some way. Um, but we, we, we also, I, I think just about every instance on the Godzilla track are assuming that most of our readers are unknowing and should care about this message that Godzilla originally had, but has now lost. Like that, that matters in some way, uh, because this is a classic film. This is an important message. Godzilla's popular right now. And did you know? Did you know the origin? You might be interested. I mean, look at the, look at the world we're living in right now. This ultra woke moment where a lot of people want just about every film that comes out to mean something. And a lot of films don't mean anything. I really don't think you can derive a lot of meaning from Godzilla versus Kong. I just don't think you can. I think you'd be working really hard. I think you'd be bending yourself into some sort of mental pretzel uh, to get there. So when we construct a so what and who cares statement about Godzilla, the original film, we might say, hey, you know, popular, did you know you know, and that, that becomes, again, the, the care here doesn't have to be some great, deep, mind-blowing, changes the world forever moment. It can just be, hey, did you know? Like, did you know, for example, that the lucky dragon is sort of mentioned? The Trinity uh, test is mentioned in the 2014 Gareth Edwards Godzilla movie. But it's given this really bizarre treatment. And this is no diss to the people who wrote that movie or worked on that film. But holy smoke, they, they pretty much go, you know what we were doing when we tested that bomb? I said Trinity earlier. I meant, uh, I meant the, um, the Bikini uh, Islands, the, the Bikini Atoll uh, bomb tests. Um, Castle Bravo. And uh, and and the, and the 2014 American Godzilla film explains what they were doing there as we were trying to kill the monster, and it's like, no, you are the monster. The Castle Bravo test is the birth of Godzilla. You know, I'm sorry, America, you don't get to do this. You don't get to go. Let's sweep this under the carpet yet again. So maybe I am casting some shade in their direction, but you know, that's that's one of those who cares sort of comments and that can be worked into our introductory strategy potentially. Now on the other hand you might say like how am I ever going to get anybody to give a crap about Hiroshima? Why would anyone care about an event that happened in the last century? Well there was a recent presidency that was pretty interested in using nuclear weapons. So there becomes this you know most of us, most of us didn't blink at that. I don't think like it was news, but it wasn't the kind of news that it would have been in the Cold War. Anybody went near the nuke button and we all, you know, duck and cover. And so maybe you come and you say, we, we talk a lot about the problems in the world, but here's a problem that we're not paying any attention to anymore. And I want to tell you about a moment when, you know, and it, it, it could, it could kind of weave in that way. Or <clears throat> you can talk about the way in which 
we think we know something, you know, black and white. That's another, you know, sort of cultural moment that we're living in is it's this or it's that. And if you're not on board with me, then you're gone from my life. Shun, shun, shun. And the, the conversation between Alperovitz and Asada reveals, if nothing else, the complexity of truth, the complexity of a historical moment where we want to side with Alperovitz, but gosh, we're having trouble facing what Asada has to say. And we may be coming away from this in an utterly okay, but response. Who was responsible for dropping the atomic bomb, the Americans, but who was responsible for them feeling that it was necessary to the Japanese? So who's responsible for the deaths of the people at Hiroshima? Both, right? So we can get into this who cares and, and so what business through a number of doors. And some of them are, have deep social and political significance. And sometimes it's just, hey, people who like literature or film, did you know? Or, hey, history buff, I know we've been saying for years this thing, but recent evidence demonstrates something else, right? And those have those have wider-ranging implications, but we don't necessarily need to be including those in our writing. We just need to be finding people that we can sort of identify as people who care or should care about what we're writing about. And once we do that, once we have that imaginary reader in our minds, it's easier to write for someone than it is to just write. Who cares? Again, the people who care about our claims. It'd be fans, it'd be experts, right? So fans of Godzilla or experts on, on, on history and Hiroshima, people who should care about our claims are probably going to be general public, non-experts. We want to be talking to the, the person on the street about what we've learned and say, hey, did you know? And this is interesting because... Right. And again, this doesn't have to have like students will will, will come away from uh, statements about like your conclusion should blow my mind or your introduction should uh, tell me why this matters in a really deep way. And then you come to a chapter like this. So what? Who cares? And the students are trying to make, you know, Shakespeare align with real world issues. And sometimes it does. Sometimes Shakespeare's works can do that. But sometimes we're just analyzing the poetry. And who cares? Experts on Shakespeare care about that sort of thing, right? So you might be writing about the special effects for Godzilla and thinking, so what, right? You know, you get to this and go, oh, crap, are you kidding me? This was supposed to have some form of meaning? No. Who cares about, about special effects? People who dig movies care about special effects. So if you've been writing about special effects... You, you can imagine that audience. Those are the people you're writing for, right? When we say that we should link our argument to some matter that readers already deem important, it doesn't have to solve world hunger. It doesn't need to end the pandemic. It can simply be something that, that some niche group somewhere cares about. Now, you have to be careful about this, right? We can't just invent groups that will be interested in our uncontroversial uh, our uncontroversial thesis, right? Remember, again, from a Canadian writer's reference, in constructing an argument, you take a stand on a debatable issue, a debatable issue, something that people might have an opinion about. So, you know, if you were writing about Godzilla and special effects, most people think 
that the rubber suit looks hokey, it looks silly, it looks stupid. But we know from Rifle and to some degree Sutsui, although Sutsui works with those naysayers, right? Sutsui's the guy going, you know, maybe we can learn something from the guy in the rubber suit. But then we've got Susan Sontag, a feminist critic, coming along and saying that the movies that Ishiro Honda was making are some of the best in terms of convincing imaginations of disaster. So there we can come with that, that we create a debate, basically. Oh, I know you think that rubber suit looks silly, but let me tell you something. In 1954, it was absolutely state-of-the-art, and in many ways was better than the original option that they would, they wanted to go with. I mean, I see, I see this from students every year. They'll go and they'll take a look at stop motion from the beast of 50,000 fathom, beast from 50,000 fathoms and they, or 500,000. I don't know how many fathoms that beast is from right now, <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. The beast from 50,000 fathoms. It's 50. Um, and it, it, wonderful, amazing stop motion animation. No, it, it, not, not going to contest that. There's something beautiful and charming about stop motion or The Nightmare Before Christmas. And let's face it, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer wouldn't be any fun to watch. But there's something charming about it. But it's not particularly convincing. It's not convincing in the same way that seeing actual motion or CGI that mimics actual motion and makes it, you know, look uh, somewhat realistic can do. And, And that 1954 Godzilla there are some really convincing moments. There are also some very unconvincing moments, but to put ourselves in in the seats, in the minds, in as much as we can of the viewers in 1954, and maybe we can use Tsutsui's statement about, you know, the viewers leaving the theater in tears, not because the special effects were awful, but because they had seen convincing representat- representations of destruction that reminded them of the horrors of Hiroshima. So, so what? Who cares? You've, you need to go beyond having a thesis and go beyond supporting that thesis. Let's find a way to link our argument to something, some larger matter, and it doesn't have to, doesn't have to, say, doesn't have to save the world, that readers already deem important. And we decide who those readers are. We don't have to identify that. We don't have to come out and say, I am writing for... The G fans, the people who read G fan magazine. We don't have to say that. We don't have to say, I'm writing for historians. It should be clear who we're writing for. That there is an audience that we like and, and I'm not I'm not I'm not looking for my students to like this isn't a game where I go like I'm gonna guess who you are writing for. This is for us as writers more than it is for me as a teacher reading. This is about us writing a really coherent and compelling argument is very hard to do if we can't imagine who it is that we're trying to convince. 